Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in the book of Colossians called The True Christian with a message titled Complete. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2, 9 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is in the heart of every single human the idea that something's not right and something needs to be done to fix it. Of course, the statement that something's not right doesn't yet identify what that something is. So imagine you went to your doctor and you told him or her that something wasn't right inside of you. And then, you know, a series of blood tests and everything else is done and MRI is ordered. Doctor comes back and says, you're right, something's not right. Now, in truth, he would be correct, but you wouldn't be satisfied with that because he couldn't identify what it is. See, years ago, a famous preacher used to say, we shouldn't tell people that they're sinners because, look, they already know they are. And of course, he was wrong. I mean, survey after survey has indicated that the vast majority of people don't think that they're sinners at all. Indeed, they think that in their hearts, they're basically good people. And it's true even of people who've been convicted of murder. But still, we think something's wrong. And like my person who visits his physician, no one seems to agree what it is, exactly what's wrong. You know, some blame society. Indeed, a lot blame society. The rich and the powerful have ruined our lives, they say. At least that's what Karl Marx thought was the root of the problem. Others blame their parents. I have a guilt complex because I was raised in a guilt-filled home. Still others blame the lack of enlightenment and so advocate either you know, some spiritual path to obtain enlightenment or some philosophical approach. And others blame sexual repression. Others blame one individual that wrecked their lives. I recently met someone, he's of Palestinian descent. He told me the British in the Balfour Declaration had destroyed his life. He said a historic injury had been done. And if that had not occurred, his life would be okay. He was seething with anger. I told him what I said was really wrong. He had disobeyed Jesus who told him to love his enemies. But the Bible identifies the thing that's wrong as sin. Or to put it plainly, what's wrong is we violated the law of God and consequently God has alienated himself from us. Nothing can be right until the sin problem is dealt with and the alienation between God and ourselves is healed. However, our flesh or the lower nature carries on in rebellion with God and that thing that's wrong grows ever deeper and more profound. We've been studying the book of Colossians, the book that defines the true or the authentic Christian. The book begins by telling us that the true Christian is the one that worships the true Christ, not the counterfeit Christ of human imagination. But the feeling that something is still wrong or something is incomplete with Christ, it remains a real temptation for believers. The idea that there might be something out there that might be used to supplement our faith. Perhaps it's a contemporary philosophy or spirituality. It's always a temptation. And then see to it, says Paul, that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. And then in order to take the argument back to where it began, look back at Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That is to say, why are you tempted to go back to what's inferior when that which is superlative is before you? What lack is there in Jesus? Look again at the words before us. The fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Christ Jesus. Now, there have been some differences of opinion among scholars as to how to understand that phrase, but I think the meaning is actually quite plain. The Godhead dwells from eternity past to eternity future 
in Christ. Christ is the great creator. He's the judge at the end of the age. All that is God is fully realized in Jesus. No genuine Christian will ever confess that Jesus was a created being. No, no, he is one with the Father from all eternity, and it was in the fullness of time that the eternally existent one, the altogether glorious God the Son, took upon himself human flesh. That is, when we have Jesus, not only is nothing missing, but nothing can be missing, for all the perfections of the Godhead are in him. And in verse 10, Paul adds the words, and you've been filled in him. Christ has come to dwell in us, and more, the words in him, well, those are common Pauline words. Those words say that all believers are united with Christ. Christ's future and our future are now inextricably bound together. We will rule and reign with him. What's lacking with that picture? Nothing. So let me repeat it. The divine fullness is in Christ, and Christ is in us. But Paul's still not done. Think of Christ, he says again, last part of verse 10. He's the head of all rule and authority. See, that little phrase reminds me of what Paul said to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 1.21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is, no matter what exists, Christ rules over it. He's supreme over it. He's preeminent over it. He's far more excellent than it so that nothing can be added to Christ. See, as I've said before, when we make it Jesus plus, as if anything could be added to Jesus, we don't actually make it Jesus plus. In our own thinking, it's really Jesus minus because we assume that something needs to be added to the one whose excellence is over all. But still, and I can hear here the doubter, if he or she is allowed to speak his or her feelings, might end up by saying, well then, why even as a Christian do I still think that something's wrong with me? I feel something's missing. Something's not complete. And here, let's read the next two verses in Colossians. For if you listen carefully, my dear brother or sister, who thinks something is missing, you need to ask yourself, what is it that's present? Colossians 2, 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So let's begin with a line, a line which is true of everyone who truly believes, who's a genuine Christian. If you're genuine, you have been or you were circumcised. I need to do a bit of background into circumcision. Circumcision was a rite that was first introduced to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. Genesis 17 tells us that when Abraham was 99 years old, God established his covenant with him. I'm reading Genesis 17, 10 to 12. It records God speaking with Abraham. It says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So from the time of Abraham until the time of Christ, and might I add, to the present day, all Jews, all physical offspring of Abraham are circumcised. And why is that? Well, circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin of the male penis. And so all males have a sign on their reproductive organ that they and their offspring after them belong to the covenant with God. Now, that much every casual reader of the Bible will understand. 
But then when the church of Jesus began and Gentiles were becoming worshipers of Jesus the Messiah, and as Paul says in Romans 10, they were being grafted into the promise with Abraham, well, a debate began. Shall we demand that the Gentiles be circumcised or was circumcision only for the Jews? And you can read all about that in Acts chapter 15. You see, the debate on whether the Gentile male should submit to circumcision almost split the early church, but it didn't. See, the apostles and the leading elders of the church came to a conclusion, and that conclusion, that's found in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, and it's a biblical one. They said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, we, we Jewish believers, as well as uncircumcised Gentile believers, all of us, circumcised and uncircumcised, will be saved through the grace of Jesus alone, by his cross, through faith in his completed work. Nothing needs to be added to that, not even circumcision. And so here's their conclusion. Circumcision was a sign for the Jews and for the covenant that God had made with them. Some Jews were faithful to their God, others were not, and they were eternally lost. But all of them were circumcised to indicate that God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel and everyone in it. Hence, the command for circumcision was never intended for the Gentiles. It was meant uniquely for Israel and the unique role that God would give Israel to play in the history of redemption. But it had nothing to do with salvation. So this much, every New Testament believer should have been taught. So then, what could Paul possibly have meant when he said, all you Gentiles were actually circumcised? Well, he must not have meant it physically, surely. He did mean it spiritually. And we need to examine what it means to have been spiritually circumcised. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 Caribbean ministry cruise may just be the right mix between relaxing and spending time refreshing your walk with Jesus. You won't wanna miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, laugh with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest, Amanda Stott. With breathtaking scenery, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement, it's guaranteed to be an unforgettable vacation experience. Now it's filling up faster than we'd imagined, so touch base soon for more information to download the itinerary or to sign up. Just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by those who participate. There is in every true believer in Christ, how shall I put it, a spiritual circumcision. Every true or authentic Christian has been circumcised. And then Paul hastens to add, this is not a circumcision made with hands. That is, I'm not speaking about physical circumcision. For that's not necessary for Gentile believers. But there's another circumcision that has occurred. Now slow down here and remember again that circumcision was the mark on your body that you belong to the covenant. 
But of course, for the Jewish people, this was a covenant that God made with them to play a unique role in the earth. But that did not mean that all the Jews were saved. Indeed, the Bible makes it clear the majority were not. Now, there is, says Paul, a different covenant. And with that comes a different kind of circumcision. So let's keep reading. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is, the spiritual circumcision that all believers have undergone is not a putting off of the foreskin, but a putting off of the body of flesh. And so like physical circumcision, something is lost. In the case of physical circumcision of boys, what's lost is the foreskin. But in the case of conversion, when a man or woman repents in Christ, what's lost is the body of flesh. And so now everything depends on how we understand that phrase, the body of flesh. So let's not guess what it might mean. Let's see how Paul uses that phrase in other places. So Galatians 5 verse 24, we'll hear Paul saying, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in Colossians, Paul says the flesh, as it were, was cut off. And in Galatians, he says it was crucified. Now, in Galatians, Paul gets very specific about what he means by the flesh. He speaks about things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, hostility towards others, envy, drunkenness. Well, you can see Paul provides quite a list. Indeed, in order to explain that, Paul says that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. That is, one is evil and the other is good. Now, in Galatians, Paul can say that all Christians have crucified the flesh as well as he will later say that within every Christian, there is a state of warfare that exists between the flesh and the Spirit. And that the job of the Christian is to feed the desires of the Spirit and to starve the desires of the flesh. And so it seems from reading all of Paul that he can on the one hand say every Christian will fight against the desires of the flesh throughout their entire lives. And at the same time, he could also say that either the flesh is crucified or the flesh is completely cut off. So can both of these things be true at the same time? And the answer is, oh, yes, they can. The flesh is cut off in that we're no longer in Adam. We're now in Christ. Our loyalty, our allegiance, our head is no longer Adam, but it's Christ. Adam is crucified. He's cut off. Christ is now our head, and we live in him. We fight the flesh because we no longer belong to the flesh. We belong to Christ. That old oath of loyalty to the flesh has been permanently cut off, circumcised from us. Now, every true believer has had that experience. We have gone from loyalty to Adam and this world to loyalty to Christ. We are cut off from all that is opposed to Christ. That's our position in Christ. That's also our experience in Christ. In essence, we're talking about the language of the new birth. To be born again is to receive a new heart, but also a new allegiance. The reason inauthentic Christians continue to go back to this world is that the matter of their allegiance— or the matter of their citizenship is not settled. They may desire the new life, but because they have not had a heart transplant, because they've not been born again, the loyalty of the flesh has not been broken. But for those who have received the heart transplant, the question of loyalty, well, that's no longer a question. Now then, Paul goes from the metaphor of circumcision to a second one, and this one is of baptism. 
Now, unlike circumcision, baptism is practiced on both men and women alike. And unlike the old rite of circumcision, which simply included you in the covenant family of Abraham, baptism symbolizes that you're born again. And so the dissimilarities between circumcision and baptism, that should be apparent. But there's one remarkable similarity between the two. Both the old circumcision and the new mark of baptism is an external mark, that we belong to a covenant community. One is the old covenant of Abraham. The other is the new covenant of Christ. You know, very good. Let's look at the mark of baptism, verse 12a, having been buried with him in baptism. Would you notice how similar those words sound to the previous line, putting off the body of flesh, slicing it off, throwing it away. Now, excuse the graphic language. I think it's necessary here. In the same way, baptism is being buried with Christ. This is one of the reasons I think, and I'm here speaking of best practices, why we should speak about immersion. Notice the language, buried in baptism. See, the only reason we bury is because a death has occurred, and this is the case in baptism. We bury the old man. Baptism is a sign of permanent declaration. That's why it's wrong to baptize someone independent of the declaration of their hearts. While it was appropriate to circumcise children independent of their hearts, baptism is never independent of the heart. It's a declaration, I have died to this world. And it's not just I, but I died because I'm united with Christ. So remember the language, I'm buried alongside of Christ. Paul repeats that same theme in Romans 6 verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's repeated again in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is to say, upon conversion, I actually died. I died to myself, to my flesh, to my vision of what I want in this life, and I no longer live to any of that. My baptism is my death certificate to this world get back to our text, Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That is, our conversion doesn't just consist of closing a door, it also consists of opening the grandest of all doors imaginable. I was not just buried with Christ, I was raised with Christ as well. And although we might think of the resurrection of Christ guaranteeing our future bodily resurrection in the last day, that's all true. But Paul wants us to say here that in faith, we participate right now in the resurrection of Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus, you'll know this is not a new thought. John 5, 24, Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has or has already passed from death to life. That is the transformation from death to life, although it does occur in the final resurrection, when this body of decay is replaced by an eternal body fit for eternity, although that day will one day happen, yet the believer who truly believes already belongs to the age to come right now. We've been born again. We've received a new heart, which loves the things of God. We've ceased to belong to the body of the flesh, the nature that loves the things that belong to this present age. In short, the person who believes even now, even now, is already participating in the life to come. And so spiritually, 
The resurrection has already occurred in us. It occurred when Christ was raised from the dead, and since we are in Christ, we have participated in that as well. Even though that participation is only a spiritual one, yet it awaits a physical one as well. It is the sign of what will happen in the future. So circumcision was only a symbol that the physical descendants of Abraham belong to the old covenant. Baptism is the symbol that the day that awaits us, the day of the eternal kingdom, those days have already penetrated into this present world. So let's return to where we began. The idea that something's not right. If you're a non-Christian, what's not right is that you're moving towards death. You're alienated from God. You're guilty of sin, which has not been atoned for. But if you're a Christian, what is not right is that your new body has not yet arrived. The kingdom has not yet been consummated. But what is right is that your sins are forgiven, that you're reconciled to the Father, that you've died to this evil age, that you've been raised to promises that are deathless, and that the door to the old world has been permanently closed for you. And for that reason, O Christian, for that reason, why would you seek the philosophies of this world? Why would you think that the sexual mores of this world and the cult of blaming past generations for everything imaginable or the idea that you can have a fulfilled life simply by imbibing deeply of this world, why would you think that's even possible? No, 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 no. The fullness of the deity does not dwell in this world. It dwells in Christ. You're not lacking anything, for the fullness of the deity of Christ dwells in you. My goodness, what's lacking in that? Nothing at all. Thanks so much, John. (laughs) Let me ask you, why is it that even being a follower of Jesus, that sometimes we still feel like there's something missing? I think there's something missing because, uh, look, uh, we have still struggled with our own sin nature. And the reason we feel so incomplete is because we have given ourselves uh, to things that are unworthy of Christ. And everything that we give ourselves to that's unworthy of Christ creates in us a deep sense of dissatisfaction. And we interpret that dissatisfaction as if something is missing. But if we got a sense of the greatness of Christ and thought of no greater value in our life than to throw ourselves unreservedly at his feet in submission to him, I mean, the more that we think that way, the more full we feel and the more sure we are nothing's missing at all. That, I think, is the difference. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. November is an exciting time at Back to the Bible Canada. This month, we offer you a booklet of meditations entitled Quiet Spaces for Christmas a 30-day devotional focused on the themes of Christmas. It invites you to spend time daily reflecting on God's Word and hiding the truth in your hearts. We're also offering an alternative gift for the youngsters in your life. It's a wonderful story from the pen of Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway called Jake and the Christmas Surprise. This funny, thoughtful story is perfect for that bedtime read with the kids or grandkids. It also provides questions for reflection at the end of each short chapter. Choose one of these great Christmas resources as our gift to you. 
And if you'd like both or additional copies, they can be purchased at backtothebible.ca. We hope these resources will bless you and your loved ones this coming Christmas season.